0: All right, so please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 this morning. We'll be looking at the first 12 verses of this chapter altogether, Lord willing. But we're going to begin just by uh, thinking about what's going on in this, this chapter and in this part in particular. And I think here in particular something important is is laid out for us. We're going to be looking this morning at the characteristics of a faithful ministry and we could even say faithful ministers, okay? In, in in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12, there, the Apostle Paul basically reveals to us three characteristics that testified to the faithfulness of his gospel ministry at Thessalonica, he's there with Silas and he's there with Timothy at one point, and he's saying, this is what it was like when I was there. You guys know our testimony. You see these characteristics in us and in the work that we were able to accomplish among you. He's going to be appealing to that. And I pray that as, as we think about this, and as we look at this, that we'll be able to examine ourselves in light of these characteristics, that we'll be able to see these three characteristics in the ministry of this church, in the ministry of your elders in this church, in the ministry of you personally in this church body. And and as you do that, I I hope that you you understand when I say ministry and ministers, I'm not using that this morning in the official way, okay? I'm going to lump Ministers, in this sense, into the category as servants of Christ, disciples of Jesus. Not an official title, not talking about the leadership in particular, the elders or the deacons. I am talking about servants and their duty to minister to one another in the body, okay? That's what we're going to look at. Are these three characteristics noticeable, testifiable in our lives? as ministers, servants of Christ. Now, we, we do recognize, though, like I said, we do recognize that elders have particular responsibilities and ministries. And um, you need to also recognize that you have particular ministries as well in the body. And and what I want you to think about this morning is something that, that's said in Ephesians 4 before we actually get started. Um, keep your finger there in Thessalonians. Go to Ephesians four. So you can kind of see what I'm talking about in regards to our ministry as Christians in the local church, okay? Both elders in their particular duties and members in their role and function in the church. Look what it says in Ephesians 4, verse 11. It says that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers to equip the saints. That's you, okay? The body. For what? What? For the work of ministry. That's your duty. We equip you. You do ministry among one another. Equipping one another. and Encouraging one another. Practically it says. For the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And of the knowledge of the son of God. To mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children. Tossed to and fro By waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking to you as the body here, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part, that's you, is working properly, ministering properly. It makes the body grow and so that it builds itself up in love. So that's what I'm talking about this morning. I'm not not erasing the distinctives. I'm just saying that I'm going to use the term minister for you as well as for the elders, but understanding we have different roles to play within the body, but we do have roles to play. Elders are simply supposed to be the men that God has placed in front of you to, if you will, take a machete and cut the path for you to follow, to emulate, to imitate. And that's what the Apostle Paul says he was doing at Thessalonica. And so we're just trying to set the pattern for you so that you can actually continue doing the work as it's laid out before you. So, so with that in mind, this message is going to have a twofold application today, okay? And, and here's the application. Basically, what I, what I hope to, to accomplish here is that the, the Lord would actually use this message to help you measure the faithfulness of your elders' ministry. I want you to examine us in light of these characteristics. I want you to rejoice over the things that you see as getting right. And I want you to pray about the things that we're still lacking in. We need you to do that. I petition you to do that. Examine us against these characteristics. Pray for us. Rejoice with us. Let us know if we're doing something right. That's kind of nice every once in a while. Pray for us when we're not getting it all together. Let us know that as well. That's that's one part that I want to do, but one part of the message to do accomplish. But the other part is this. I want the Lord to use this message to help you measure your own faithfulness in your ministry here in the church. And I want you to be able to rejoice over the things that you see yourself excelling at, doing well, and I need you to work with us to pray about the areas in which you are lacking because they will probably be brought out this morning. I don't intend in any way or by any design to have anyone in particular in mind here as I'm preaching this message, but all of you corporately, because I know this, we can all still excel more, right? And you may feel like it points that I'm pointing to you, and that's, if that's the case, let the Holy Spirit do his work. I'm just the messenger this morning, okay? So with, with that understanding, understanding that every Christian is a minister in that sense, and we should be faithfully working together, let this evaluate your character and your role in the church, okay? That's what we really it to do this morning. So let me give you a little bit of context of chapter 2. It's kind of a weird transition from chapter 1 to chapter 2. If, if you read it, you may not really pick up on it, but as you do a little study and look at what was going on, there there is something happening that the Apostle Paul's responding to in chapter 2. He had been gone at this time when he wrote this. He was away from them, and he received news from Timothy, and he's responding to the things that he had heard from Timothy that was going on at Thessalonica, Okay. And so there are a couple things happening here. He's he's basically in chapter two. He's defending his own personal ministry against slanderous attacks, most likely from Jews who who kept dogging his steps from town to town and then came after he left Thessalonica, came into Thessalonica and began to basically slander and discredit him among the Thessalonians so he's, he's making a defense against that. But what's, what's amazing by the Holy Spirit's divine insight and wisdom is that we don't just have a defense, we have an encouragement. We have a measuring stick. We have a guide that's given through this defense. It's, it's extremely helpful because it helps us examine our own lives, our own ministries, the church, the, the elders, and, and look at what characteristics ought to be magnified in us so that we can work on excelling still more in the things that are lacking. So, when you go to to, 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, Paul Paul makes a big point in verse 5 about, I think, the importance of a minister's character in his ministry. And I think that a lot of times people skim past this, and don't really stop and pause and think about it. He he mentions the importance of his character, his personal character there, and his conduct there at Thessalonica. That's really, really key for a faithful ministry. Your character and your conduct matter. Life and doctrine matter. They work together or against your ministry. All right? So you want both lined up properly. And so he he makes a point of that there, In chapter two, he's basically going to call on this group of people that are gathered there that knew him. He's going to say, look, I'm going to call you to testify for me. I'm going to throw myself upon your mercy. I'm going to let you defend the faithfulness of my ministry by my own integrity, by the way that I lived and served among you. Now, that sounds pretty neat to say that, to do that here in this letter, because we know the Holy Spirit inspired this, and that's awesome. But you try that. You throw out to anybody here, to a church, hey, I'm going to prove the genuineness of my ministry, my faithfulness. You testify to it. That's kind of risky business, isn't it? You may not get the response that you wanted. It wasn't risky for Paul, though. Paul was a person of integrity. He was a man of integrity what he said and what he did lined up with the gospel. And it's important that that we get that because oftentimes what a man thinks about himself is of little consequence as compared to what others see going on in himself. What goes on in the man's mind is not nearly as weighty as what's going on in his actual witness to others around them. They see Some of the things he professes and how they don't line up with what he possesses, with what he's doing. And so, oftentimes, when we throw ourselves on the mercy of other people's testimonies, we find ourselves wanting. We come up short, but not the Apostle Paul. This didn't frighten the Apostle Paul a bit. It didn't frighten him because the Apostle Paul had already had someone else examine him and his ministry. He had already submitted, submitted his life. His words, his actions, his ministry, he had submitted all those things to God's scrutiny. And living in the light of God's omniscient gaze, Paul was set free to call upon others to give testimony. He was set free to say, you know, you can testify about the validity of my ministry, the integrity of my life. The holiness of my conduct, my motives were pure. and that's That's freeing, church. When you live under the omniscient gaze of God, you are free of the fear of being discredited. Paul did not need to pump up his ministry resume. He didn't have to because he had a faithful testimony. And that's what I pray would be said of us as a church and me as an elder and the other elders, I know this is their desire that that others would speak about the integrity of our lives and our work and put them together and give God praise. That's ultimately the point of looking at these three characteristics. It is to give God glory when a man and a ministry walk in unity with the truth. Okay, so let's, let's look at the text. Let's look at um, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12. Let me read it. I'll give you an outline. We'll try to go through it. I feel like I'm talking really fast. Sorry. I'm actually excited because I've spent like a whole day and a night on this. And I I've got 14 different tracks going on in my mind at the same time about things I want to point out. And I can't do it all. So bear with me. In verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes... For you yourselves know. Actually, I want you to highlight something as you go through this text. There are six times that the Apostle Paul calls on the personal testimony and memory of the Thessalonians. Mark them as we go. Here's the first one. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. That is empty. It was not empty. But though we had already suffered... And had been shamefully treated at Philippi. Remember, they left Philippi. They had just been thrown into prison for preaching there, ran out of town. It says, As you know, after this, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict, agony, the word. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel so we speak not to please man but to please God who tests our hearts for we never came with words of flattery as you know nor with pretext for greed God is witness nor did we seek glory from people whether from you or from others though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So so being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God. But also our own selves. Our own souls. Our own lives. Because you had become very dear to us. For you remember Brothers. Our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you, believers, for, you know, how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Some pretty amazing characteristics that stand out in the Apostle Paul's ministry and life here. In this passage, I think you can see that Paul's faithful ministry was characterized in this way, in three different ways here. First of all, By humble service. And you can see that in verses 1 to 6. It was characterized by humble service to others. Secondly, his ministry was characterized by personal sympathy, verses 7 to 9. Personal sympathy for the needy, for the needy. And it was also characterized by his faithful support Verses 10 to 12, faithful support of all the saints, not just the needy, not just the group corporately, but all, including individually. That's what he's going to point out there in those last few verses. It was characterized by humble service, personal sympathy, and faithful support. I think these these are characteristics that I would classify as a faithful ministry, of a faithful ministry. These are the characteristics of a faithful ministry that that I pray and, and we as elders desire that would be made evident in, in our ministry personally, in the church's ministry corporately, and in all of you as members personally. And, and I think this is something I want to remind you of is what I said last time we were in Thessalonians. The quality of the ministry is based on the character of the minister. If if the characteristics of your life as a Christian Don't line up with the words that flow out of your mouth. You are just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Meaning you are just irritating and distracting to the ministry and to all those around you. And if that's the case, today is the day to repent. Today is the day to look at your character and look at your actions and your words and say, are they lining up? Listen, when when. The message we speak and the life we live don't line up. There's a problem. The message we speak and the life we live must not speak two different messages to the world and to the church. Our words and our life should testify to one message. It's the message that the Apostle Paul's life and words testify to in this text. It testifies to the faithfulness of Christ. To take A man, a mere man, a fallen man, a clay pot, and make him into a trophy of God's grace. An instrument fit for the creator to use to reach the lost and encourage the saints. And I want that, that one message, to be what characterizes your words and lives today. So I pray that this message will help do that, help create a desire in you to have that happen. All of us fall short on that. I recognize it with me most clearly. Um, I like it when I, I get everything right in the day, but most of the time I don't. Like, I can tell you about the doctrine of the hypostatic union, and I can explain the glorious work of Christ on the cross, and then you can get in front of me at Walmart and take too long, and I can be really angry and say really harsh things under my breath. That life and those words... That, that ministry, in my heart, is in conflict, and there needs to be repentance so I recognize that 's my own struggle, and I need to repent and I pray that you desire to do the same if you see that in your life so let's let 's look today at um, verses one to six and just look at the uh, I think the first characteristic here that needs to be seen in a faithful minister a faithful minister will be characterized. By their humble service to others. That humble service is on behalf of Christ. And it's to glorify Christ's work of humility. His work of incarnation. It's by incarnating the gospel. And and magnifying Christ personally. That he has brought praise and honor. The Apostle Paul's humble service, I think, is made most clearly evident. That he is a faithful Servant of Christ, because he reflects Jesus in his words and in his actions. His humble service was, first of all, made most evident in his personal integrity to preach the word. Even in the face of persecution, even in the face of trials and. Difficulty. We see that in verses one to three. He says, you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. If he wanted to deceive them, if he wanted to betray his intentions, um, he would have watered his message down. But that's not what he does. The same message that got him chased out of Philippi, he's preaching with more zeal, more boldness, more fullness. That's why it's not empty. It's full of power. It's full of conviction, even in the face of difficulty, because he is a humble servant of God. Of Christ and his word. And I think this, this describes great personal integrity. I'm going to tell you why. You go to some place and you get rocks thrown at you. You go someplace, you preach a message, and they chase you and your family and your friends out of town and threaten to kill you. And you go to the next town, tell me if you're going to be as bold. What's the temptation? Okay, People are sinners. Let's just make it real generic. The last town I said that, you know, liars and thieves and homosexual and adulterers and fornicators, those all will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm going to water that down a little bit. I'm just saying some of you aren't as good as you ought to be. I mean, that's the temptation, but not for the Apostle Paul, because his life was to be a representation of the one who spoke the word perfectly and clearly without any compromise. The Lord Jesus And he says here in these three verses that the Thessalonians knew this about him. They knew this experientially, that he boldly proclaimed God's word in the face of opposition. And he did so as as if he was a man charged, charged or commanded to preach no other message and use no other methods than preaching Christ and him crucified. In season and out of season. No matter what it costs you and when it goes easy for you. Preach the gospel. Preach the word. In season and out of season. That was his commission. And this testified to his faithfulness to it when he went into these places and was persecuted. Yet continued facing that with deeper and greater boldness to magnify Jesus the preaching of the truth. The Apostle Paul understood and believed in and rested in the sufficiency of God's word. He knew there's nothing else. If I water it down, if I change it, if I twist it around, to make it easier for me, I'm not going to get the same results. There's not going to be people converted because it's by the word of God. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And there's not going to be saints being sanctified without the word of God nourishing their hearts and guiding them in the truth. I can't compromise this, even if it costs me my life. i got to keep preaching it. Let me die preaching. Man, I, I thought about this one time up here preaching. I wasn't feeling real good, and you have these thoughts as you're preaching. And one of the thoughts that came through my mind was, wouldn't it be cool to die while preaching? That'd be cool for me. I'm, I'm not sure what it'd be like for you guys, but I would love to die while preaching. What a great way to go home. You mean it's from glory to glory. You know, it's, it's just amazing. He was ready to go. I mean, what a glorious way to go out too, For being a martyr of Christ, being a faithful witness to the end, like the man who I think witnessed greatly to the Apostle Paul, a man named Stephen. Now, the Thessalonians knew he was a man of integrity because he proclaimed God's word faithfully. They also knew that his his ministry was full of integrity. It was marked by personal integrity because it was motivated by purity, not greed. His methods and his motives were not self-orientated and his methods and his motives. He says in verses four to five, they are being tested, they are being approved by god 's omniscient gaze, look what it says in four and five, but as we have been approved to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, okay, God has approved you it means God has tested him, He has tried him in the fire quite literally at times, if you will, under persecution, is he going to compromise? is he matter of fact, when he was converted, Jesus shows up and says. Look, I'm going to have to tell you about how much you're going to suffer for my sake when I call you into this ministry. He proved to be a man that was worthy. He was approved by God. And so he spoke not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. This test that's spoken of here, it's not like, you know, you go into Paul Wilson's class or Justin's class and you take a test and you go home. This is a test that every time you open your eyes, you're taking. Now, he, it's a test that he's already been approved by God in. But there's always a temptation. There's always a struggle. There's always a possibility of falling short. And so you're always checking your heart. You're always looking at your motives. You're always watching your methods. And he he's saying, look, you know, our methods were pure. Our motives were pure. We didn't do this out of verse three error. We didn't do this, in other words, like to come in and try to deceive you. I didn't do this out of impurity. And I think that word there is not so much talking about sexual impurity, but but lust for money, lust for power, greed. We didn't try to deceive, he says. We came under the omniscient gaze of God into your presence. And that's what marked his ministry. That's what molded his personal integrity. He lived Under the fear of God's gaze. Look what it says in verse five. I think this is really interesting. It says, for we never came with words of flattery. As you know. Now this is his external testimony. He says, you know, we didn't come in puffing you up. We didn't come in tickling your ears. We came in preaching hard stuff. We preached hard truths to hard hearts so they would be softened by the hammer of God's word. He said, we, we, we know, you know, rather, that we did this. You saw this. You heard this. He said, we didn't do this with a pretext for greed. And that's talking about something they couldn't see. Oh, they could hear his words. They could judge them externally, but they couldn't see greed internally. They couldn't see the motives of his heart. So he's making a double appeal here. He's saying, look, you know that we live consistently in front of you like this. And God knows why internally. God is our witness and our actions are testifying to what he already has approved. He knows our hearts. He knows us inwardly. You see us outwardly. There's consistency there. And listen, church, it was the the fear of God. The fear of God is what did this. Our God is to be feared. Ananias and Sapphira, New Covenant Christians, put to death for lying against the Holy Spirit. Our God is a consuming fire. He is to be feared. That consuming fire could either destroy you, Literally take you out of this world or it could purify you when you submit to that gaze of his holiness and let it examine the character of your life. The fear of God will purify the character of a person's ministry It'll purify your words and your motives, your methods. So live under the omniscient gaze of God and you will have a faithful ministry. When you do that, you'll be able to do what Paul did. You'll be able to speak in season and out of season. When it's popular, when it's not, you'll be able to stand with full conviction, knowing that your heart is unstained by greed. And people will see something in you at that point. They'll see a man of conviction who speaks the truth. A man who is not defiled by greed and sin. They'll see someone who looks a whole lot like Jesus in your faithful ministry. That's the point. Paul was not looking for a pat on the back for his great integrity, for his his humble service here. He was looking to see Jesus magnified and him forgotten. That's the desire that we should have as ministers of Christ, servants of the Lord. Now, that desire was also made evident in Paul's life through his practical humility, his practical humility. There in verse six, his practical humility um, was expressed when when basically he had the right to exercise authority as an apostle. And he held it back for the sake of the needy, of the weary, of the church. Instead of putting the church in a bind and a burden, he says, no, I'm going to humbly, physically, practically step back from my place of authority, and they didn't have to support him financially. What's interesting is there were churches supporting him. He was receiving gifts at this time from these other churches, but it still wasn't enough to support him to make a living at just preaching the gospel here. He actually has to go in and work night and day, meaning he has to go preach to them when he can, go work on tents when he can, come back and keep on doing this repeatedly. This is practical humility here. That's a sign of a faithful minister. That's the characteristic of a faithful minister. He's not preaching for gain. He's preaching for the good of others. He's serving humbly when he has the right to assert his authority. Okay, so wives, I think you talked about submission recently in your study. Listen, you are our equals. You are men's equal in every way. But God made you different by design. God gave you a specific role by design. And there are some ways you excel that man. And there are times you have to express practical humility in your service and submission to your husband. That's what Paul is doing here. And the Thessalonians knew it. They saw it. They knew that Paul's ministry was was something that revealed sacrificial love. It revealed his sacrifice on their behalf. And and they, they knew that he did that because he was trying to magnify the one he served. Did not Jesus become a servant to all? He came to serve. He did serve. He washed the feet of the disciples What humility to step to the lowest place in the home, become a slave to a bunch of dirty disciples to show them his great love for them and their duty to imitate him. That's what Paul's reflecting here. He's magnifying Jesus's sacrificial love and his practical humility. Look at verse six. Sorry, I got away from it. He says, nor did we seek glory, okay, praise, if you will, from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as special sent messengers of the Messiah, as apostles of Christ. Oh, he had the right. Trust me, he had the right. He had the right to say, I don't need to work today. You need to support me. But that would betray his love for his master who was the greatest servant of all, who he wanted to magnify. Look with me at Philippians to see who it is that the Apostle Paul and what it is the Apostle Paul is magnifying here in his practical humility. Philippians 2, verse 3, he writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. But each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this attitude, have this thinking, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or asserted. But made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, a slave. Being born in the likeness of men. That's who the Apostle Paul's humble service reflected. Jesus had every right to be served. King of kings, Lord of glory, sovereign authority over all things, sustains all things, created all things. He had the right to say bow and they would bow. One day they will, even though they do not now, they see him as nothing more than a spiritual leader at times. But there'll be people who will see him one day for who he truly is as the sovereign king of kings. They'll bow before him and every tongue will confess and everyone will say that this is the one. This is the one who who is the creator and sustainer of all things, who is worthy of worship and honor and praise. He'll do all that to the glory of his father who sent him to be our savior. Well, Paul's just wanting to magnify Jesus. What a great person to emulate in ministry. What you see in his, his witness here, his characteristic is, you see the heart of the Apostle Paul's ministry. And the heart of his ministry was a desire to serve others and magnify Christ's service, even if it cost him physically. I don't know what it's like making tents. I print t-shirts. But I can tell you what. It's not, it's not something that I, I mean, I, I like my job. I love what I do in many ways. When I've printed T-shirts for about 16 hours straight, I'm really tired of printing T-shirts. And a lot of times that happens because there are times of the year that I get flooded with work. Times it's like now it's a drought. But when it happens, my duties here in the church, when Paul's caught up in all kinds of stuff he has to do or Justin's caught up in going to shows or Ronnie's caught up in doing work where he's called away. The duties that we have as as your elders still exist. We have to find the time. And that means we stay up it means we don't sleep it means we pray when everybody else is asleep and that's what Paul is saying this is his desire i desire to suffer so i can make much of jesus by caring for the saints so they wouldn't be burdened and you have to ask yourself this right now i think do you want that is that your desire is that your desire do you desire To suffer for serving, in serving the church so that you could magnify Jesus. Is that your desire? And I know no one likes to suffer. I get that. I'm not saying that. Not that you like to suffer, but do you desire to suffer so that you can glorify Jesus in your suffering service? That's what Paul's saying here. That's what Paul's doing here. And when you do this, when you have that desire, when you have a desire to do that, to magnify Jesus by serving and suffering for his sake to help others. It's going to magnify Jesus's sacrificial love for us and it'll motivate us. I think that's the only thing that would actually truly motivate us to willfully suffer without reward. Other than knowing that Jesus is honored and that's enough. There are times when you, when you serve as a pastor and you serve in preaching that uh, people come up to you afterwards. and are like, hey, I'll, that was interesting or that was, I didn't, you know, I didn't quite understand what you're saying. They ask you questions. They interact with you, you know. And, and that's, really, that's really encouraging. Um, and there are other times it's like crickets. There's no comment. And uh, you think, I just spent 20 hours this week studying to preach. And no one? Come on. Did anyone get something out of that at all? You know, I mean, it's like, ah. And, and there, there's a time when you're preaching and teaching and pastoring. that You're pouring your heart out, your life out. And people get angry with you. People betray you. You have a demas or a Diotrephes, and they, they rise up among you. And you think, is it worth it? Well, here's the question. Is Jesus worth it? Because it's about Him. It's about magnifying His name and serving those that He places in front of you with humble, humble and contrite hearts shaped by His love for you and for them. And I hope that that kind of humble service and humble heart will be something that will be continually pursued in the ministry of your elders, myself included, of course, and the ministry that you have as members I just ask you to pray for that to take place. Let's look at the second. I'm going to go through this one kind of fast, I think. I hope I got 15 minutes here. In verses seven to nine, we see that a faithful minister will also be characterized by, secondly, their personal sympathy for the needy. Like that of a loving mother. And the Thessalonians understood and knew that, that Paul's ministry reflected that. This personal sympathy. They, they saw that he was sympathetic. Paul was not indifferent toward the needy. Not at all. The eminent apostle, theologian, scholar. Was also the one laboring side by side with people when they were suffering. And they could remember that the Apostle Paul's ministry was not just sympathetic. It was also Personal, and you can be sympathetic and delegate the work to other people. Oh, it's too bad about, you know, Bob, I'm sorry, you know, it's too bad. Uh, uh, Kyle, would you go take care of that need? But that wasn't the way the Apostle Paul operated. Or you could be sympathetic and go, well, there's a technical article you can read on that issue. Maybe it'll help you out. Here it is. That's kind of clinical, right? That's not the way Paul operated. The Apostle Paul was personal, not clinical he didn 't delegate, he infiltrated, he went in where the hurting was when the needy person arose, he went to them because his conduct his conduct was characterized by his savior 's work in him, his savior 's sympathy and personal ministry to him, and so his ministry was marked by or characterized by personal sympathy. For the needy. We're all needy. Maybe not at the same level, to the same degree, at every moment, but we're all needy. And we need people who are characterized by personal sympathy. And his personal sympathy was was made evident by his personal affection in verses 7 to 8. His personal affection for the needy. Look at what it says. But we says, you know this in verse 5, but, but we were gentle among you. And, and Listen, look at these words. These are very, very important words, a very important string of words to summarize the heart of the Apostle Paul that reflected Jesus. We were like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Taking care of her own children like a nursing mother. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Paul was characterized here by a selfless dedication that reflected the sacrificial love of a mother for her child. Moms, when you held that baby and the baby began to feed for the first time, every part of your being rose up and said, This is more precious than anything I've ever experienced, and I will guard this child. The child is reliant on me to sustain its life. I'm going to do whatever it takes to help this child. I'll sacrifice, I'll give. I'll do what it takes to nurture this child. That's what Paul's personal sympathy was like for the needy. He compares it to a nurturing, nursing mother. Verse 8 just kind of screams off the page at me when I read it because it's really unique. It's astounding. He starts in verse 7 with this great pinnacle of love. Speaking of a nursing mother, but then he actually elevates it in the next verse. It's kind of hard to see, but he actually uses a phrase here that's not used anywhere else in the Bible. He says, so being affectionately desirous, that's one phrase, OK? Being so affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own lives, our own selves, because you become very dear to us. What's interesting there? We see, I think, a noble picture of Christ-like love in the Apostle Paul. It's characterized by what he's saying. When the, the phrase affectionately desirous is interpreted from the Greek, you can interpret it this way or it could be interpreted yearning. Okay? It's not like you're yearning for ice cream. It's not like you're even yearning for, you know, the family reunion coming up next year. That's not even what it's like. Affectionately desires describes yearning for the loss of a child. This is intimate. He's saying, "Our hearts were so united to you that when we heard about you, our hearts were drawn and we would give our entire lives for you." Like you would to bring back that dead child. That's what he's saying here. So here's my question. Does that characterize your personal love for the needy in the congregation? And I call them needy because a child needs a mom to nurture it, to nurse it. And, and so ask yourself, do you have that kind of affection That kind of yearning to come alongside those who are needy in the church body. Do you have that? Is your life characterized by that? Can people testify to that? Is that how other people describe your love for the needy? I want it to be. I want it to be in my life. I want it to be in your life. And if it's not, I have to ask myself why it's not. I think it's probably obvious I think it's, it's not because I have too much personal affection for me, too much dedication to me and not to others. That's not the way Christ operated. And if, if you're not yearning to help the needy, ask yourself this. Do you ever expect to be needy? Have you ever been needy? You better be thinking about that. If you don't see the needs of those around us that are hurting and go to them to edify, to equip, to nurture, to nourish them, you may be left out in the dark one day when it's you. Now, I'm not saying to do it out of selfish motives, but I'm just saying, look, the way the body functions is to build itself up in love. And thankfully, we we can conquer our own selfish tendencies to avoid this. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 5. Give God praise for this passage Because it gives us hope to conquer our selfish tendencies when we look to Jesus and his power at work in us who are selfish by the force of our indwelling sin. In verse 14, 514, it says, for the love of Christ controls us or constrains us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. Now notice this, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now he'll go on to say that they've been given the ministry of reconciliation, meaning you're alive because of Christ, and because of that, you live for Him. And if you live for Him, you're going to be a reconciler. You're going to be going to the needy. You're going to be pursuing them. You can do this, because that's why Jesus died. He died to bring you to life. His life. It's the heart of Christ that now pumps in us. That was The, the heart of stone that was taken out of us was replaced with Jesus' heart. But we have to submit to it. Our flesh doesn't like that. So I'd ask you to do this. Pray that the love of Christ that is supposed to control us, pray that it will control your selfish desires, your selfish hearts, and pray that it will squeeze, that love for us will squeeze so tightly on our hearts that it will produce nothing but the love of Christ. It'll purge all the rest of it out because there are needy people among us. And our ministry should be characterized personally and corporately as that of a personal sympathy for those who are needy. That's our desire as elders, that's your desire as a member, and we need to strive for that. Now, thirdly, back in First Thessalonians two, ten to twelve, we see that a, a faithful minister will also be characterized by their faithful support of all the saints, not just The corporate body, not just the needy, but the people individually. Why do I say that? Well, because they're supposed to do it like a faithful father. A faithful minister will reflect the nature of a faithful father. He doesn't look at all of his children and go, okay, group, I love you and here's some instructions for you. If he's a faithful father, he does that. But then he says, hey, you individually, come here. We need to talk. I need to correct you, I need to instruct you, I need to encourage you, I need to charge you. And then he sends him out, or her out. That's what he says should characterize the kind of ministry that uh, magnifies Christ, a faithful ministry. It'll be characterized by the faithful support of all the saints, one-on-one and corporately, and the needy. Look what it says in 10 to 12. He calls on them to be witnesses. You are witnesses. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. So he's, he's kind of giving an overall statement here. You notice what we were like, what we did, the integrity of our lives. Now he says, for you know, here's how I prove verse 10. For you know, I prove verse 10 by what I did in verses 11 and 12. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you. And encourage you, that could be corporately, could be personally though, and charged you to do what? To walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you in his own kingdom and his glory. And that's the, that's the incentive behind what he's doing in, in exhortation and encouragement and this charge. He says, you know, we came to you not just with a bunch of commands, we came to you with a, a bunch of hope, a bunch of truth that will ultimately encourage you. And help you to walk worthy of Christ. This faithful support could also be called faithful encouragement. That's what a father is called to do. Paul's faithful support was was made evident by number one, his faithful instructions to the weak. His his faithful instructions to the weak saints. I'm going to list the weak saints, the the weary saints, and then the, the wearisome saints. I'm not sure where you're going to fall but some of you might fall into the last one. All right? Just be prepared. Um, and just don't be shocked if you fall into all three at some time. Okay? Faithful instructions are given to the weak saints. And he does this as a, as a wise father. And, and let me ask you this. Have you ever been weak spiritually? Yes. Do you ever expect to become weak again in the future? Probably. Right? We, we, we get depleted. We're not following through with spiritual disciplines. We get weak. We get needy. Well, when that happens, you need a faithful minister, a faithful person who's going to faithfully instruct you. Come alongside you is the term that's used here and guide you back to where you need to be going. Because when you're needy, when you're weak, you get off the trail. But he's going to come along and put you back. I was I was in Colorado hunting. First time, bow hunting up in Colorado. My brother-in-law and I took off into the woods, man. A great day. We're just going to have a blast. We go hiking. We don't take a map. We don't take anything like with No GPS. Come on. We're just going. We spent an entire day walking about seven miles. And it got dark really quick in Colorado at that time. And we did not know how to get back. And for a while, I couldn't even find him. And I was stumbling over deadfall after deadfall after deadfall. And finally... I stumbled into him. Well, now we're both lost, but we feel better because we're alongside each other, okay? And and that's that's kind of the idea here. Is we're not both lost, though, but we come alongside because we know we have been weak. And that person who is weak, we can sympathize with them like a wise dad, okay? The, the next category there, I think, that's, that's kind of summarizing his faithful support is, is that basically... He's telling them that this this faithful support comes also in personal comfort for the weary saint. Let me just say this in in the fact that the first point there that I just made, he he comes alongside. He comes alongside to instruct. Okay, he comes alongside to tell them how to walk in a worthy manner. He gives them instructions. The second point I want to bring out here is personal comfort for the weary saint is delivered Like as by a tender father, an encouraging dad. And what he does is he comes alongside not to tell them how to walk and instruct them, but to console or to comfort or to encourage them about how well they are walking. How well they are walking in a worthy manner. And we need people to do that. We need faithful ministers who are tender, they see we're off track. They see where we're doing right. They know how to distinguish between the two. And they say, yeah, you got, you, got, you got to change this, do that. But look, you're doing this. This is so good. And they come alongside us to cheer us on in the race. They don't come alongside just to throw out commands and directions. They come along to support us. Come on, you can do this. I've seen the evidences of grace in your life already. They're still there. Just cultivate this. That's what a faithful, supportive father would do for his children. The last one is the faithful support of the saints is, is identified in Paul's life by his continual motivation to the wearisome saints. OK, he does this like a diligent father and um, he does this basically by charging them to keep on walking You're driving me crazy. Why do you keep stopping and get it off the track? Look, you've got a commission. You've got a duty. Get back in there. You can do this. All right? But he doesn't give up. And look, we've all met people who are wearisome. And maybe you are that person. All right? But we're not going to give up. We're going to continually motivate you biblically to keep on walking. Keep on pursuing godliness. You may drive me nuts on the way, but I'm going to keep on reminding you that you can do this by God's grace. This is what his faithful support looked like. That's what a faithful minister should be characterized by, this faithful support of the weak, of the weary, and the wearisome. Now, these are the kind of characteristics I I truly do want to see magnified here in our church and in our lives. And what I want you to get here is I I conclude. These things are not impossible by God's grace. They're not unachievable by God's grace. They are well within the grasp by God's grace of our little hands and hearts. The characteristics of a faithful ministry and minister, understand this. These characteristics just simply flow out of faithful moments. Faithful moments in the Christian's life where you have basically sought God in your heart to find a way to magnify Jesus. I want to serve you, Jesus. And through these faithful moments in your life, you're going to find yourself doing things you were surprised by. A faithful ministry is built on faithful moments. You're going to find yourself magnifying Christ's humility. When you see yourself... Willfully setting aside your rights in order to speak the truth to others and serve them, even if it's costly. You'll, you'll see this magnified in your sympathy, a Christ like sympathy that seeks others in the church who are hurting, the needy, the weary, and then you share with them what you have in abundance, not to get back, but to give. You're magnifying Jesus' sympathy in that moment. That's what will build a faithful ministry in the future. And you also find at times as you're doing this, as you're just simply living the Christian life, submitted to God under his gaze. You will find Christ like faithfulness being evidenced in your life as you come alongside that weary saint. And you keep coming and you keep coming and you keep coming, though it's hard, though it's difficult. These are the characteristics. Of Christ. We want to see magnified in the church. And, and these are the characteristics of Christ's faithful ministry. We want to see shining out of the church. Through our lives individually. And these ministry moments are, are worth more. In the kingdom of God. Than your next big promotion. These these ministry moments. Are worth more than your retirement plan. These moments. Faithful ministry moments are worth more than your graduation and your seminary education. Because in reality, in those ministry moments, you are glorifying God in your daily life. And that is what should mark the faithful ministry of every Christian in this place. Not looking for a platform, not looking for applause, but just looking to make much of Jesus every day. That's your Christian ministry. And let me encourage you. You can do it by God's grace. But look at those characteristics. See what you're lacking. Pray. See what you're excelling in. Rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this time you've given us. Thank you for the way that you have manifested truth to us in such a way that it is undeniable. You have given us your written and scripturated word and you've placed your spirit upon our hearts, our souls to give us understanding of the things that we read and to see how they line up consistently and how they ultimately point us back to the greatest ministry ever accomplished in faithfulness, that of the Lord Jesus. We pray that our lives and our attitudes would reflect him and that those characteristics we see in Paul would be reflected throughout this congregation and all of our works and labors, we pray in Christ's name.